And so what they do is they seek to take over all the cultural institutions. That's what they're after. This is why they want to cancel Joe Rogan because Joe Rogan's got this big old platform that's that's broadcasting and transmitting out ideas to the world and legitimizing ideas that they don't want legitimized. They look at the idea of they look at idea legitimation as being something which gives gives power to a certain view. They don't want that. So they want to cancel Joe Rogan. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Moment of Truth, the podcast of American Moment. My name is Saurabh Sharma. I'm the president of American Moment, and I'm joined by uh, Nick is here. He's just left for the intro and outro. He had to run to another meeting. So um, I'm taping this, but uh, I promise he's on with the guest we have today. And uh, it's a cool one. We have on our first Twitter suit, a guy by the name of Local Distance. It's not technically his name, but he has a really interesting background. And, and if that sounds familiar, it's probably because you saw his massively popular thread on the shenanigans that went on with Joe Rogan's cancellation recently. Um, he wrote a thread that was getting retweeted by Dave Portnoy, getting attention by Rogan himself and Jordan Peterson and all sorts of folks on this Dem super PAC that was actually behind the Rogan cancellation. Super interesting stuff when we talk about it. But he also has a whole beat on critical race theory, wokeness, um, the academic underpinnings of it, the practice, the praxis. And so um, we tie together all of it. You know, how does the theoretical foundations of Foucault and Derrida get to the point where you have a bunch of random Democratic super PAC flacks uh, trying to cancel Joe Rogan for what they perceived as slight against uh, the sacred order of American life. And uh, so Wokel is a leading writer and researcher. He's focused on culture, political philosophy, and the rise of postmodernism. Previously, he spent a number of years working in government of Canada before he turned his attention to writing. His essays um, have uh, been key in shaping the debate on the pushback against cultural Marxism as well as postmodernism, education, and critical social justice. Um, he can, you can find his writings at places like Counterweight, but also um, his uh, first book, which will hopefully be upcoming soon. He's in the middle of writing it. He's also a visiting fellow at the Center for Renewing America, uh, CRA, uh, which is led by our friend Russ Vogt, recently celebrated its one-year anniversary. That's why we got woke down from Canada. And so I uh, hope you guys enjoy getting a, a behind the scenes look at how um, uh, the sausage is made on all of this stuff. You know, we we're generally pretty reluctant to engage in sort of boomer posting on wokeness and stuff at American Moment. But but Wokel is actually a very serious commentator, someone who actually understands the academic underpinnings. He's not just throwing out terms that will get boomers riled up. He understands how it works. He's a serious thinker. And I think you'll, uh, even if you feel like you're fairly familiar with this discourse, you'll find a lot to learn um, in terms of thinking through how does, um, you know, these ideas that start in weird, you know, German universities end up resulting in the total culture war that we find ourselves in today. So we'll go now to Wokel distance. Thank you guys for listening and uh, hope you enjoy the episode. Well, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. You're our first uh, Twitter suit that we've had on. It's a very exciting day. Unfortunately, you know, it, it's not for lack of trying is that most of them are unwilling to appear in person. So thank you <laughs> for being willing to do that. Well, I'm, I appreciate the invitation, the opportunity to be here. Uh, tell us a little bit about your background. It's its certainly an interesting one. How did you get to the point where, where you're doing what you are today? Uh, you know, a fellow at an American think tank, um, uh, you know, under a pseudonym. I mean, just walk us through your story of how you got here. Um, so how do I, how do I go about this? So in the, in the early 2000s, I went and I did some theological education. I got a degree in theology. And while I was there, we were studying, uh, postmodernism and maybe we can get into this a bit later, but postmodernism has a lot of import for the way we interpret language, the way we interpret text, the way we interpret culture. And as you can imagine, people studying the Bible, that would be very interesting because they're always interpreting a text from a particular culture. Mm -hmm. So theories of interpretation and things that touch on interpretation are very important to them. So I was doing that and that really paved a way for my understanding of postmodernism because in theology, particularly in kind of Protestant theology in the early 2000s, there was a movement called the Emergent Church, which was all the rage. So it was Brian McLaren and Tony Jones, and there was a whole crew of people, 
the late Rachel Held Evans was involved in that. John Caputo was involved in that. James K.A. Smith was involved in the postmodernism, if not the emergent church movement itself. And so all of that was kind of moving in. That was all the rage at the time. That was the early 2000s. So I then left and I went into philosophy. I was getting my philosophy degree. I was telling people, we are living in postmodernism. And they all said, no, 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 no. Postmodernism was philosophy in the 80s. That's dead now. We've all moved past that. And I was kind of like, no, no, you haven't. You know, you, you really are living in postmodernism with all of the relativism and nihilism that comes along with it and the loss of meaning. But okay, like I don't need to fight. We'll, we'll all read Nietzsche and Plato together. So by 2014, I had kind of looked around and thought, you know, maybe it is dying out. You know, maybe postmodernism as a movement is ebbing back. <coughs> maybe that is what's happening. And then, so I was kind of undecided about it. And I, I called my friend and I said, look, we're not, I mean, at least in, a, in sort of Western North American analytic philosophy, we're not seeing Derrida, Foucault, Baudrillard, those sort of postmodern philosophers from, from the French 1960s, right? So I go and I work for a government in Canada as a ministerial assistant. And I'm just doing that. And one day while combing through the news on a break, I see the Grievance Studies Affair where James Lindsay, Helen Prockrose, and Peter Bogosian had written several absurd academic papers, absurd academic papers, and gotten them published in many reputable journals. <laughs> like Hypatia is the number two feminist philosophy journal in the world, and they published an article in there that said only, only feminist women are allowed to be funny. <laughs> and they problematized John Stewart and Stephen Colbert for being funny, but also being white men. <laughs> and I was, or they published an article in a in a geography uh, journal that uh, about that argued that um, dog parks were sites of rape culture and patriarchy. <laughs> mm. Yeah, right. This is yeah. just just totally ridiculous. There was a journal called Affilia, which was a journal of social work, where they. Um, reworded um, Mein Kampf by Adolf Hitler. They took a picture, sorry, a chapter of Mein Kampf and reworded it in the language of intersectional feminism and just published that and they accepted it. <laughs> cool. Yeah, <laughs> right? Yeah. Like all of the bitterness and anger and, but instead of like being like the Jews are the problem, they made it that the white men were the problem yeah. and they used the language of, of feminist um, with feminist jargon to kind of code it and, and, and massage the language so it doesn't sound like it's written by a angry german racist in 1923 it sounds like it's written by a an angry feminist in 1997 and they published that mm -hmm. i thought this was hilarious <laughs> so i got a hold of james on twitter and i said yeah what's going on it's like oh this is postmodernism is there that's why it's postmodern relativism as long as you can make an argument on the that they like in their language with all of their relativistic postmodern assumptions and you code it in social justice, it can get accepted. I said, isn't postmodernism dead? And he goes, well, no, it's a mutated form of postmodernism. And I said, I know exactly what this is. Once I read it, once he showed me the specific changes that they were making, I said, I know exactly what this is. <clears throat> and he said, this is going to get into church circles and this is going to get into religions. And I said, I think it already has. And so I sent him some of that early 2000s emergent church work. Mm -hmm. and we began talking about that. And so from that point on, I think that was 2017, 2018. And from that point, we just began to, to work together um, and just dig stuff up as much as we could, as fast as we could. And when I kind of left the political realm, I started my Twitter account thinking I'll get a couple of hundred followers, maybe a couple of thousand followers to discuss postmodernism. And that was a year ago I started that, or maybe two years ago. I'm now sitting at 107,000 followers, which I didn't expect. And that introduced me to a lot of people. Uh, Russ Vaught at the Center for Renewing America. Uh, Christopher Rufo was at the Manhattan Institute. I uh, was introduced to James Lindsay and, um, and all kinds of people. Peter Bogosian, Melissa Chen. I've been writing. I've written a counterweight for Alan Pluckrose's organization. So that, that was how I kind of got going. That's my sort of my origin story to how I ended up. It's not, I don't have, like, there's no education for it. Mm -hmm. 
very, very few people understood properly what kind of culture we're living in vis-a-vis -vis postmodernism and how it's been affected because a lot of the people who understand postmodern philosophy are adherents are, yeah <laughs> yes that's right so there's an education for it just not an education against it <laughs> yeah there's a there's an education for it and a lot of the people are leftists who have sort of um mixed postmodern insights with various elements of of left-wing movements or ideology. So when Jordan Peterson talks about postmodern neo-Marxism, the common critique against that is that, well, postmodernism says there is no absolute truth and that there is no single correct meta-narrative or single correct view or single correct viewpoint. But Marxism is its own worldview and its own meta-narrative. So those two things can't be, and they don't realize that, not exactly that, that neo-Marxism takes a different tack than Marxism does. Mm -hmm. And the new postmodernism has dropped out certain elements that would would create that contradiction. Yeah. And because they're using a subjective epistemology and because they academic don't, rigor is not actually expected of them. They that's right. So the 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 tensions between neo-Marxism and postmodernism have been somewhat ameliorated mm -hmm. by um by the view that they can basically say and this is how they do it. And this is the little trick that they pull is rather than saying there is no meta narratives, what they do is they say, we're going to have this kind of standpoint epistemology. We're going to have a subjective epistemology based on your <clears throat> identity within society. So you as a person of color versus me as a, as a white person, we would have different positionalities. We would have different positions in society. And so I have a particular viewpoint and a particular understanding. But you, as a person of color, would have a the perspective of an oppressed person. And so you can bring your, op uh, your oppressed perspective into the conversation in a way that I can't. And the, the, this sort of woke worldview provides a, a way of trying to harmonize how you and I would um, interact in terms of me checking my privilege and making space for your for your knowledge and if there was a say a disabled transgendered feminist they would have their own view of knowledge so there is no single absolute meta narrative there's this kind of see this this stack if you will of uh, a hierarchy as it were of positionalities that all intersect and knowledge is based on the knowledge that you have as you have been socially constructed, as your identity has been socially constructed within society, right? So that's how they kind of dodge that. And once I realized that and I saw all that fitting together, uh, the problem is, of course, that you can construct infinitely many identities. That's why it starts as the gay movement and we don't want to be racist and it ends up with LGBTBIPOC, right? We're just, they're just continuing the lengthening of the acronym as it, as we're, we endlessly fragment those identities infinitely. We're going to start to have to, you know, invent new letters to add to the alphabet <laughs> to be able to, to put it all together. I mean, I, 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 I'm curious, you know, now that we've laid the groundwork for this kind of woke ideology, I want to talk about tactics a little bit. Yes. Um, I remember when some of this first stuff was starting to come out. I mean, you'd see, you'd like see things on Twitter and they were taking over kind of like, like very progressive left wing, you know, organizations. And then it started with like human rights campaign folks, you know, more yeah. like kind of normie establishment left wing organizations to yes. now where some of our cultural institutions like, you know, Protestant churches across the country. I yes. mean, you can't hardly throw a stone without coming across this stuff. Yes, um, it's it's right. impossible to find um, or near impossible to find a church that hasn't been altered by wokeism in some uh, way, shape or form. Um, and I think we're finding that, I mean, in what you see on TV, there are not new shows without, you know, intersectional characters. Not like I, it's just it's gone so far in such a short period of time. Mm. Can you kind of lay out the timeline for us and, 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 and the tactics that the people putting forward this ideology have used to take over all of our institutions? Yeah, so there's not one particular tactic. There's a there's sort of a broad toolkit and a, a worldview that's involved here. So um, to, to unwind back a little bit, they're postmodernists. So they're very, very concerned about language, power, discourse, and culture. So 
to oversimplify to the extreme, uh, once it was realized in by the 20s, left-wing academics were looking at the Soviet Union going, uh-oh, <laughs> this is not going to be the workers' paradise. They, that, they were aware of that. Mm-hmm. They were looking at Europe and they were seeing, <clears throat> you know, the rise of fascism in Germany and they were understanding that, uh-oh, <laughs> you know, they, they we're in trouble. Mm-hmm. So um, in 1937, Max Horkheimer writes an essay called a tradition, I believe it's called traditional critical theory, where he lays out what critical theory is. And critical theory is going to be, uh, it's a, it's the critical theory of society it doesn't seek to s- describe the world in neutral terms. A critical theory of society seeks to interrogate why the world is the way it is, particularly socially. That's what their question is. We don't want to describe the raw facts about the political system what we want to do is answer questions about how the power works why it's functioning the way it is you you might recall marx's dictum the philosophers have already interpreted the world the point is to change it yeah (laughs) this is what critical theory wants to understand how do we change it to make it to what we want it to be so they're focusing on and and that kind of kicks off the movement which we sometimes call cultural marxism but is the the application of if you kind of abstract out Marx's oeuvre, his milieu, his um, you abstract out his perspective and let's say instead of applying that to economics, we're going to apply it to the culture writ large. We're applying it to everything that exists. So we're moving from understanding goods and services like this and these glasses and understanding how the microphones were made and the means of production. And now we're looking at culture. Postmodernism comes along and postmodernism is going to be obsessed about language and about power. Uh, Derrida is, how can I put this? The portion of Derrida's philosophy, which really takes off, is his analysis of language. And, he sees language as being slippery. Um, you, you could think of it this way. If I ask you to, the definition of a word, what are you going to give me? You're going to give me more words. Mm-hmm. And if I ask you for the definition of any of those words, you're going to give me more words. So words always refer to words, always refer to words. So it's all, it's a system. Words are a system of words that are defined by each other. And he would say there's no inherent meaning to any word. It just gets its meaning from its place in the system. So, you think, that seems kind of reasonable. And then he takes it a bit of a step further and he says, look, I like to use the analogy of a bucket. I can use a bucket as a bucket or I could turn it upside down. I could use it as a chair or I can put it on this table and use it as a paperweight. So what is it? Well, it depends on its context. So words are defined by other words. They have no inherent meaning. There's no law of the universe. There's no metaphysical entity which makes it mean something. No, it's just, it's we decide what words mean. And they get their meaning from the system. And there's no inherent meaning. And all of a sudden you realize, oh, oh, wait, meaning is shifting and it's always contextual. So all of a sudden language becomes very, very slippery and things can be redefined. Things can be um, reinterpreted. And he applies that to all of reality. And he says, basically what we're doing is when we interpret the world, that's what we're doing. When I I look out, I know what this is by virtue of the fact of its context, right? That it's in a can, that there's a little place for me to drink out of, that there's a liquid inside. I understand what it is by virtue of the context that it's in. The same way we read words, this is the same way we read the world. And so it can be interpreted multiple different ways well. If you can do that with language, you could do that with culture. And if we're in, if we're analyzing culture through that lens, boy, that's that's right in the backyard of the neo-Marxists who are also studying culture, because they're very interested in how language works as well. So you can see that they're they're right beside each other. And then Michael Foucault comes along, and once I once we lay out Foucault, you'll see how the the tactics just flow and fit perfectly. Foucault thinks. We're always dealing with power. That's his view. And he thinks that um, that knowledge and power are intricately linked because the person who has the 
power to decide what's true as in a lot of power. Whoever decides what is true is the one who has the power. Because if I can decide what a society believes, I can really benefit myself, can't I? Right? You, you see where he's going with that. Mm -hmm. So he thinks that the, the sort of the principles which undergird our society, the things that we think are true are produced by a social process. Right? You, people, so he would say that you guys all think that science is a subjective process, but science is carried out by people and institutions, and those are social things. Well, those social institutions are warped by what? By people's biases, by their limitations, by their finite viewpoint, by their own interpersonal interests, and by their interpersonal fights. He says, so that's all warped. And they have their own things that they want, their own interests that benefit them. And so they are are setting up the systems that they set up to determine what is true in accordance with what benefits them. Now, to be fair to Foucault, he would have rejected what I just said as an oversimplification. To be unfair to him, it wasn't as complicated as he was making it up to be, because this <laughs> is really what he's just arguing. Yeah. <clears throat> so take those three things together. The, the Marxists have shifted away from pure economics to focusing almost exclusively on cultural issues. Because they want to say, why is society the way it is? Derrida is doing this linguistic analysis, which allows them to tear down language and reinterpret things. And Foucault is saying, look, we're focusing on power and on how, how power moves and flows through society. And he's going to say that, that the ideas which get replicated and passed throughout society and are produced and reinscribed, those, those things are going to be in large part, what determines and structures society. So you mix in, later on comes the publishing of some of Antonio Gramsci's work, and he talks about cultural hegemony and what he says, and this will tie this all together, and you'll see how it touches the institutions. He says, look, the reason why socialist revolutions fail is because they're at odds with the overarching culture. He said, you have to win the culture. You have to take over the culture. And he said, if the capitalists have a hegemony, if the capitalists own the overarching culture, if the if if those people are get getting to set the tone for what we all believe and have their ideas be the dominant ideas in society, then even if you bring in the wonderful workers' paradise, they'll reject it because they don't believe in those ideas. So you have to to have cultural hegemony. You have to defeat the cultural hegemony and, and make your own cultural hegemony. Mm -hmm. And he says the people who are in charge of the cultural hegemony are what? Those are the newspaper makers. Those are the artists. Those are the broadcasters. So if you, if you mix those things together now, just we're going to mix that whole stew, right? The, culture, the, the critical theorists are moving into deal with culture. We have Derrida dealing with how language works. We have Foucault discussing how language and power are linked and how ideas and power are linked and how um, people within institutions are warped by power and maintain things for their interests. And we have Gramsci saying whoever owns the culture or runs the culture has tremendous power. And you mix all of those ideas together and what do you get? Well, you get the idea that here's what we need to do. We need to take over the institutions of cultural production because if we can do that, we can set the course for society. If we can control all of the institutions which create the ideas and create the... Um, make sense of the world for people, which create the archetypes that they're looking for, which decide what is celebrated, which transmit truth, which transmit the stories that we get to tell ourselves about, about what is good. If we can take over those, we can put in our worldview and broadcast that. And so what they do is they seek to take over all the cultural institutions. That's what they're after. They're seizing the means of cultural production. That is yeah. that is correct. That's what they're after and that's what they're on about. Because again, they're obsessed with this postmodern view that everything is entirely about culture. That's their view. They've taken this, this almost to an extreme because what they would say or the view that I will attribute the to them whether they like it or not in a certain way is I'm going to they're going to say the truth is out there but what's really important is what do people believe to be true mm. truth is a social phenomenon of what is believed by people 
There is no objective place to stand where you could pull back and have a view from nowhere and objectively determine truth. No, 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 no. Truth is a social phenomenon and a product of society, a historically constructed social phenomenon. And because of that, it's the institutions which construct truth. And because the institutions get to determine what is true, we get to take that and we get to run, we get to run with it. Well, hold on. We need to take over those institutions so the social, what becomes true for the society is our view. Our view gets transmitted as truth. So what they do is they take over, they want to take over everything. This is why they want to cancel Joe Rogan because Joe Rogan's got this big old platform that's that's broadcasting and transmitting out ideas to the world and legitimizing ideas that they don't want legitimized. They look at the idea of they look at idea legitimation as being something which gives gives power to a certain view. They don't want that. So they want to cancel Joe Rogan. Yeah. Right. This is how they operate. And so I. I it's funny because you, you've you've right now described the theory, and uh, and I want to talk briefly about the practice, and then I want to talk about the praxis. But but on the practice side, uh, it's funny you you uh, we had booked you to come on the show uh, about a month ago, I think almost now, and uh, you were coming to town for to celebrate the Center for Learning America's first anniversary, and uh, and then uh, two weeks in after we had booked you, uh, you suddenly uh, uh, had a main character day on Twitter, <laughs> for lack of a better term, <laughs> where, uh, yes. where where you you had done this incredible thread on um, on what exactly was going on with Joe Rogan's uh, the attempt to cancel Joe Rogan yeah. to get him deplatformed from Spotify and everything. Um, walk us through what you discovered and then um, well, walk us through what you discovered in, in uh, the pretty sophisticated ways um, that that these sort of cancellation attempts happen. They're, they're not emergent. They're very highly choreographed. And, and yeah. you seem to have uncovered evidence uh, to that effect. So um, let me just say something briefly about how how the the, the left sort of operates. They they naturally take over institutions. That's what that's their preferred method. So I'll make up an example. I'm just off the top of my head. Suppose you have. Um, Okay, uh, a K-12 elementary school. And they have one person in the K-12 elementary school whose job it is to teach the interns and to train the interns. The person who is a, a woke leftist will look at that and say, hmm, right now they're training these people using, say, I don't know, John Dewey, the American progressive, the liberal progressive reformer. Well, they don't want liberal progressive reformer, they want wokeness. You all, all the sort of Barry Weiss liberals don't nearly go far enough. They're not intersectional enough. They, they, they are still too capital. We just can't have any. Of, no, 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 no. We need to go, you know, like to them, Barack Obama's alt right. Like that's mm -hmm. how these people think about the world, mm -hmm. right? So they're looking at no, 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 no. Yeah, we you see their that. political compass charts they create, and it's like yeah, you know, I was just thinking Bernie about Sanders that. is a centrist, and everything <laughs> to the right of it is, you know, all, all the being rest. a Nazi. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah that's that's right. <laughs> Bernie Sanders is a centrist. Yeah, it's ridiculous. Um, okay, <laughs> that was gonna. I'm also trying to thought. Oh yes. Um, so, so they're gonna look at that and say, well, I'm gonna angle for that teacher training job, so I can be the teacher trainer. And they go and they get the teacher training job. Then they look around for teacher training materials that are are woke. They want woke teacher training materials that will look like you know regular everyday teaching materials. So instead of, of having some book by John Dewey, they'll bring in, you know, is everyone really equal by Robin DiAngelo and Oslem Sensoy? DiAngelo, of course, wrote White Fragility later on, but here we go. Or they'll bring in Teaching to Transgress by Bell Hooks, and we'll make that part of the education. And we're just going to swap it out. And to all the world, to all the parents, all they know is that the old teacher trainer retired and that the new teacher trainer is Mrs. Williamson. And Mrs. Williamson has probably Miss Williamson, yeah. if we're being honest. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, mix MX Williamson. Yeah. Um, you know, we, we have uh, Ms. Williamson is going to be the new teacher trainer. Um, Ms. Williamson got their degree from, I don't know, uh, Brown University or Princeton and will be doing the teacher training and the internship program. And was okay. And 
you know, they pull out a, a series of books and they're going to say, well, here's teaching to transgress and we're going to have, and you look at this and you go like, to you, it's like, I, I, the regular person doesn't understand what any of that means. The teacher seems fine. And it looks like we just had the old trainer come out. We have the new trainer come in and the program is exactly the same. And people don't realize that it's been completely hollowed out. You swap one for the other, mm -hmm. right? That's what they do. Mm -hmm. That's, that's that's their preferred method mm -hmm. and so they wear existing institutions like a skin suit to yes yeah yes that's exactly right they hollow them out and um that's a, that's a that's a great analogy um david burge once said um left these kill institution gut it skin it wear it around and then demand respect <laughs> right this is this is exactly right <clears throat> however every once in a while someone comes along and refuses their demands. So we got to do something about it. And the thing that they do about it is cancel culture. We're going to cancel you. We're going to say you are problematic. Uh, we're going to bring heat on your organization. And we're going to build social pressure to destroy you. A lot of those tactics come out of the book Beautiful Trouble by Dave Oswald Mitchell. So what does that look like in practice? Well, Joe Rogan gives us a bit of a view. Now there's two things. There's the organic sort of grassroots woke lefty kind of um, movement. And then there is the kind of corporatized view of that, mm -hmm. the which they will hate to admit because they, they self-identify as not being corporatists. Kind of like if you think about the way that they, that someone who's a man will identify as a woman when they're mm -hmm. transgender, they identify as not being corporatists. They're all corporatists and they're all making bank off their books, but they yeah. identify as not being that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you can think of it that way. Yeah. Don't a lot of these like lecturers get like several hundred thousand dollars an hour for like a lecture? Yeah. Yeah. Robin D'Angelo, I think, is 20 grand a day. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I mean, just just so they identify as being on the side of the oppressed. They're not, but they identify that way. Right. right? Like, they, yeah. It's it's very strange. Mm -hmm. But so now let's get into the Rogan thing. So now that we have that laid out. What they want is they want to pressure Rogan. They want to get Rogan off the air. And all of these tactics have been picked up sort of by the the, the Democrat left ecosystem. The sort of, um, I'm woke, but I'm also a corporatist and I'm also a highly trained lawyer from, you know, Harvard. Right? Like those two things have collided. So this is what happened with Rogan. They want to get him off the air. And how do they do that? Well, we have to create a stench. We have to create a reason for people not to want to be associated with him. We're going to engage in reputational destruction. We're going to make him a problem. We're going to try to go after him in a way that will make people want to pull the institutional support. Have you guys ever seen the picture where there's like the tiny domino and then there's progressively yeah, larger yeah. dominoes? That's what they're that's what they're doing. That's actually an old tactic of theirs is to is they they will look at a situation and they'll do what's called power mapping and they'll figure out who has the power to do what and why and how it works. I mean that's where they get from Foucault, right? They're mm -hmm. obsessive with power. And then they'll say, okay, we can't maybe pressure someone directly, but we can what we can do is we can find a pressure point somewhere. We can find somebody smaller that we can pressure and we can pressure that person and they can pressure someone slightly bigger and they can hit someone bigger and then the dominoes fall till we get the large, large person. So what we want is we want Spotify to be fully woke and only transmitting wokeness so that everyone who's on Spotify only has woke options. Mm -hmm. We have to start smaller because we can't just give Spotify an order. Like I demand you do this. Spotify's gonna be like, why would we do that? So we have to do something else. So what can we do? Well, we're gonna go after Rogan. Okay, so what do we do? Well, we've got to destroy his reputation. We've got to find a way to pressure him. Well, gee, that's gonna be pretty tough. So, so they can't get Rogan right off the hop. But oh, remember we wanted to take Spotify. Maybe we can embarrass Spotify. Maybe we can put Spotify in a tough spot. Oh, how do we do that? Hmm. Well, what if we could create a huge, what if we could turn Rogan into a liability and put a huge stench on him? So here's what happens. Here's how the sausage gets made. Someone comes along and they're going to put together a compilation video of Joe Rogan. They're going to take a bunch of things he said out of context. 
In this case, his use of the N-word to describe things when he was talking about the N-word, he wasn't calling people N. He was saying, you know, should we, we shouldn't, why can't we say N? Why is it wrong to say? It? It's a discussion about the word, but they're just going to cut that out. So it's just him saying the N-word over and over. And we're going to throw that out in the world. And it's going to look really, really awful. And then Spotify is going to wear egg on their face and they're going to lose sponsors and they're going to lose artists. And all of a sudden that contract with Joe Rogan starts to look pretty bad. And maybe we can kick Rogan off of Spotify. Now it won't get rid of Rogan's audience, but it will send a message to absolutely everyone else, won't it? That we are in charge, that you had better follow our woke ideology. Because if you don't, this will happen to you. If we can get him, we can get you. Okay, that's the strategy, mm -hmm. right? Here's how it actually got put together. This is the, the kind of internal thing. There was a, an account called Patriot Takes. And it used to be Parlor Takes. And what this person would do is pull cringy boomer posts off of Parlor and embarrass boomer conservatives, which is like, it's fair game, man, in social media. People do this all the time. We, Boomers are funny. Like, <laughs> we have defiant L's. They had parlor takes. It's, mm -hmm. It is what it is. Mm -hmm. yeah. And they eventually became patriot takes and expanded their cringe operation to whatever it was. And they posted it first. So the question is, well, who's patriot takes? Well, they're affiliated with a group called Midas Touch. Well, who's Midas Touch? Midas Touch is a Democrat super PAC. Now, your viewers will know what a super PAC is, right? A super PAC is an organization that can take in almost unlimited amounts of money. They just can't be officially affiliated with any particular candidate. Mm -hmm. But they can still advocate for any particular ideological position. So it's very useful, right? If you're just going to do something generic. Mm -hmm. All right, well, so Midas Touch is run by three brothers. One of them was a former representative with within the Kaepernick camp. One of them worked for Ellen, and I can't remember what the third brother did just off the top of my head, but all of them were kind of in that space of cultural politics where culture meets politics, right? Mm. So it's – if you think of like, like a piece of a puzzle, you've got culture and you've got politics and they fit together, and in that overlap, there's like this cultural political space that occurs, mm -hmm. and they were all kind of circle in within that area. Mm -hmm. And also the one guy was a social media manager for Ellen. So he's got a lot of understanding of how social media functions, how algorithms work. And so what happened is Patriot Takes finds this video. They resurface it. At the time, I wasn't sure if they'd made it themselves. I thought they, they might have made it themselves, but they might not have. But the point is that they got it and they published it. Out it goes into the world. So Midas Touch comes along who's affiliated with Patriot Takes, and they have 700,000 followers, and Patriot Takes has 400,000 followers. So first Patriot Takes goes, bam, video to our 400,000 followers. Then Maya's Touch comes along, and they start amplifying that by retweeting it. And then each of the founding brothers of Maya's Touch, I believe they're called the Mazalis brothers, those three guys, who all have 140,000 followers each, they start amplifying it. And they keep retweeting it and then retweeting other people's retweets of it. And why are they doing that? Well, they're trying to create saturation, right? They don't want you to see it once. They want to see it a bunch of times. Because if they pop it up once and pop it up and then pop it up again, if it pops up on his account and then pops up on the Myers Touch account and then the brothers retweet it and they all do that once, it goes around, maybe gets a thousand retweets and dies. But if we can keep pushing it and keep pumping it out and keep the controversy going, it gets escape velocity, which it did. And then it gets to like... 10,000 or 12,000 or 20,000 retweets and then how many people see it and then that gets picked up and now we're on our way to a controversy because now there's a reason to be doing activism oh joe rogan said the n-word so now we have all our, our activists to get up and say you are problematic you are doing this of white privilege we need to we need to immediately come in and we need to make changes we're now in a position to make demands because you you've you are covered in the stench of racism. And the only way to do that, to get rid of the stench of, of racism, the only way for you to escape the stench of racism is to do what we want. Right? Like that that opens the door for all kinds of pressure. Mm -hmm. now, the only way to achieve redemption for the institution that has dared to platform him is to do what activists want. That's right. And you, to sacrifice yourself upon the altar of 
wokeism. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's exactly right. The only thing would would count your penance is to put me in charge. Mm-hmm. That's the only. It's the only way that you can become. We will sell you. It's like the, like selling indulgences, and except your indulgence is diversity training. We're going to sell you that. That's your indulgence. Mm-hmm. So, um. Now, Rogan had already been in a little trouble because he'd platformed some people who had views on COVID, which were not particularly popular. I don't know if those experts were any good or not. I'm not in the medical field, so maybe that was right. Maybe that was wrong. But the point is he was weak and he had been weakened by that. And they look at him and he's platforming people like Ben Shapiro and Barry Weiss and Andrew Schultz and a lot of people who are doing work, which is the woke people would find absolutely abhorrent. I mean, my goodness, you're platforming Jordan Peterson. You're platforming Be- uh, um, the Weinstein brothers. Like, how? What are we? What are we doing? Mm-hmm. How? How could you platform Brett Weinstein? This is I don't. I can't believe it. It's unbelievable that you would allow people who are not woke on your show. It's this is un un. You can't do that. Wow. And so they want they. Th- what Midas Touch is doing is is capitalizing on that, and they have created this sort of machine to say, okay, we're a super PAC. We know all of these tactics. We're going to get that video up through Patriot Takes. It's going to launch that. We're going to keep it going, keep that momentum going with our large following. We're going to keep pushing it out till we get saturation, till it saturates the market, right? If you run an advertisement one time, it doesn't do anything. But if you keep running that same ad and a campaign for two weeks so that everyone sees it, it begins to to get traction. And that's what they wanted. So once they got that, that was their traction. And why? Well, Midas Touch wants the clout. If they can be the group that canceled Rogan, because no one else had done that before, wow, that would make them really powerful. That would make them somebody, right? And it turns out after the fact that they, they were working directly with Patriot Takes. They even admitted this. There was a, a podcast with Dave Portnoy after the fact where Portnoy talks about this. He asked him, he says, well, you guys are working together. And said, well, we just do compliance. Uh, not really. It came out after the fact that there had been significant amounts of money that had changed hands between these groups. I think like eight or $10,000. It's not nothing. I mean, these groups are intric- intricately linked. And so this was a pre-planned hit. They had this video. There's not a chance on earth that that Patriotic says, ah, we'll just toss this out for fun. Who knows? No. No, this is a, a pre-planned hit. They they put it out and they they know how to to operate within the algorithm to get as much traction as possible, to make it as visible as possible, to create much of a stench as possible. They know when to begin making demands. And Patriot Takes came out and said, we demand the firing of Joe Rogan. They know how to create media pressure. They know how to make get people involved. They know how to get people to comment on it. They know how to push all of this, how to, I don't know, say make people comment on it, but how to to amplify the various comments that other people are doing for the maximum amount of effect. And it almost worked. But but that wasn't organic. It's not like someone found this, just did it, and then, you know, it gained traction because that video had actually come out over a year earlier on a different account and had 600 retweets. Mm-hmm. It didn't take off. Why? Because there wasn't somebody who knew algorithms and there wasn't somebody doing social media who knew how to make something like that go. Mm-hmm. That's why. And also make sure that the right people see it, right? It doesn't, That's right. 600 accounts of 100 followers each is not what you want. You want large accounts with institutional pressure. You want journalists. You That's want right. commentators. You want academics. That's well, right. Well, and the interesting thing here too is like, also the 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 backlash against people who originally supported rogan and then flip so like dwayne the rock johnson right it's like the first thing that comes to mind like Mm -hmm. he comes out and i forget exactly what he said but he says something like you know uh this is obviously regrettable but joe rogan is my friend he's not a bad guy you know whatever yes Huge backlash against him, and then he's basically like, "I disavow my friend." Yeah, one know? of one of my friends that one of my sorry one of uh, the guys that who who did that the guy who did that was actually Don Winslow, and Don Winslow says, "You know, because um, I think he, the Rock had defended um, 
Rogan during the COVID thing and said, he's my friend. He's, you oh, know, yeah. he's good, you know. And Don Winslow pulls up this video of him using the N-word. Were you aware of this? And The Rock's like, oh, I didn't know about that. Mm -hmm. So I went through Don Winslow's books mm -hmm. and I found, I think, 100 and something uses, direct uses of the N-word in Don <laughs> Winslow's book. And so I just put them all into a thread and I got, I think it was 10,000 retweets. That was organic. I just put that in. I had, I actually was having COVID at the time and I was in the middle of a COVID fever and I couldn't do much of anything. So I was like, get my phone. I was like, oh, I wonder if you said the N word. I was like, this would be the most, it would be the most, um, like it would be the most, um, on the nose, <laughs> on the nose thing of all, of all time for one of these corporate woke people who's picked this up to maintain clout. Yeah. You know, one of these disingenuous, institutional elitist lefties to have have used the n-word more than anyone in human history <laughs> and and like not just one like many such cases <laughs> yeah like hundreds of uses of the n-word so i just like put them out and i was like we're going to go through his books here and so it was like i think i was like four images for each and there was like 20 tweets i was like here there's like 80 uses of the n-word from this guy and that got ten thousand. and you know like no response, no apology, no backing down because it's not a hit piece. Right? And he acknowledges he doesn't need to because you're not the guy with the power. What, what right? am I going to, right? Because yeah. Don Winslow knows Don Winslow's not getting canceled. Yeah. Right. You know, I had 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 it come to light that, say, who's a right-wing author, Michael Knowles or somebody had written, a, or Andrew Claven had written a fiction book that used the N-word that many times. There would be an outcry and he must leave his publisher and blah, blah, blah. That's not going to happen to Don Winslow because they know I'm not going to create a campaign. Mm-hmm. I'm going to throw this out once and just say, you lying hypocrite, stop it. Like you use the N-word. I mean, it's an amazing amount of times for someone to use the N-word. <laughs> I mean, as somebody who believes that like in art, we should be allowed to depict bad guys being bad and saying bad things. But even I'm like, this is a little much. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable, right? So I threw that out there and that's kind of, you see the difference there. But the point is that Midas Touch is, these are professionals. Right. They they under they have kind of picked up on this kind of woke. These woke tactics are effective and they do work in a certain way and they've picked up on this. And now they're kind of systematizing and corporatizing them and turning them into us. Um, <clears throat> it's no longer an organic grassroots thing being done by activists on the ground who are thinking we need to take on corporations. Mm -hmm. It's high level super PAC saying we have. A lot of experience and education in media fields we've been absorbing media theory through our institutions through our degrees at say film school at princeton or media studies at brown or wherever it is or literary theory at duke and we're going to show up and we're really going to kick this off mm -hmm. with some really high level work and although that video of Rogan using the N-word isn't particularly well produced. It can be used to great effect. And if you have the right people amplifying it in the right way and mm -hmm. creating enough controversy, people who know how to create saturation, you can create a pressure campaign. And then if you have people who know how to do follow-up and know how to keep it going, yeah, you can do some damage. Yeah. And, and that's kind of how that works. So that's like, we can go from the theory and you can see how that theory created the activist praxis and then you can see how that gets picked up by the left generally as they all kind of absorb wokeness and become as woke as humanly possible so and and that's that's what i want to ask you is that you know one of the frustrating things being on the right of center is that like a, a lot of commentators are people who couldn't like you know th that came from an academic background but were shut out of academia and so um, they love the jargon, you know, like throwing around the terms neo-Marxist and postmodernist and everything. It's just there, there's so many people who, you know, in another world, in a more sane world, would be academics. And so yeah. it really appeals to them. But it, but it, one of the things that always seems silly to me is the idea that your lay Democrat activist or college student is like, oh, they have studied the Derrida and therefore they are engaged in a cancel culture mob. There are intermediary steps yes. that are involved. Yes, there. that's right. It's, it's distilled or diluted, <clears throat> adulterated. Mm -hmm. You know, it's 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 not it's not the true you know high octane theory by the time it reaches that's right. Um, that's active right. um, usage. And 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 I I want you to 
explain kind of your theory of that mechanism? How does how does something uh, turn from principle into practice? Because I, I highly doubt that those through Mizeli brothers or whatever is their yeah. name, you know, were, were studying the, the deep texts of Marx and, oh, and yes, Kimberly Crenshaw right. when they decided that they were going to go be, you know, the, these, these uh, you know, scumbags. And so uh, walk us through that process, because I think it's often overlooked. And and sometimes the uh, the marketplace of ideas is almost hagiographized uh, on the right to the point where it's like, you know, yeah. people read the bad books and then they become woke. And that's, that's not, it's not quite that. No, no. So, I mean, a lot of those bo books were written back in the 60s and we're just seeing this now. So it obviously it's not a switch that gets flipped. Um, what's happening is that the academic theorizing paves the way. Mm -hmm. It's it's very much uh, there's a feedback loop between the activists on the ground and the academics. So very often what's going on is that the activist, the on the ground activists are coming up with a lot of the basic impulses. Mm -hmm. And then it's the academics which are th giving them the theoretical underpinnings. Mm. Okay. And once that happens, the activists will then take those various theories and employ them and interpret them in various ways and see what works. Yeah, and build out their logical implications. Yes, build out their logical implications and build out their theories of society in mm. that way. So you kind of get this feedback loop that goes that goes back and forth where the the protests will be looked back on by academics who will say what worked and what didn't and then they will theorize about why it worked and mm. why it didn't. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there should have been the the proletariat should have taken over, says Marx. Gramsci comes along and says, ah, you guys didn't own the culture. Mm -hmm. That's what happens. So you have your proletarians rising up, your workers revolt, whatever. Mm -hmm. It doesn't stick. And then the the activist Gramsci, the activist scholar, I guess, is he's the academic who says, here's my theory as to why. They then take that theory of hegemony and then they run with that. And they see how far that they can go with that. Well, we need to march through the institutions. And then, well, how how do we how is culture produced? Well, they who do they look to to understand that? Well, it's gonna be um everyone from Lacan to Baudrillard to Derrida to Foucault. Oh, so what do we need to do? Well, we're gonna go then take that down to the ground. Well, the activists on the ground say that's really interesting, but but it's all white people. That's a little weird, isn't it? Like mm -hmm. we're trying not to be racist. And so Kimberly Crenshaw comes along and she says, well, it, we need to be intersectional. Mm -hmm. We need to understand intersectionality and that these are identities and that we are, our epistemology, our ability to know, our ability to understand and interpret the world is going mm -hmm. to be a product of our identity mm -hmm. and our position in society, mm -hmm. right? And so we need to understand intersectionality, mm -hmm. that there's a difference between I'm black and I am black. Mm -hmm. There's a difference between I happen to be black mm -hmm. and I'm capital B black. I am black. <laughs> yeah. I declare myself and I absorb my identity as black. Yeah. And she goes, well, there's a difference. Yeah. One of those is a statement about what happens to be my skin color, my particular level of melanin. Mm -hmm. And one of those is grabbing by the horns a particular identity mm -hmm. and and a, partic a particular sort of uh, anchor of subjectivity where I can anchor my experiences. Mm -hmm. And then, well, I am disabled. Okay, I am black and disabled. And we're now able to layer those and have a theory of that. Well, Crenshaw is going to do that. And then that's going to go on the ground. Mm -hmm. And and then, so Peggy McIntosh is going to write about white privilege mm -hmm. and unpacking the invisible knapsack. And that's going to get picked up by scholars. Mm -hmm. And well, they're going to take that and that's going to morph into things like demanding people check their privilege. Mm -hmm. Well, then that's going to go back up into the academy. And then we're going to talk about, um, um, we're going to have books written about who gets to talk and why. Mm -hmm. How do we, is privilege checking enough or do we have to make space? Yeah. How do we make space? Oh, well, if you're checking your privilege, what are we trying to do? Well, what we're really trying to do is center voices of color. Mm -hmm. So now we're having a conversation about who's at the center and who's at the margins, which calls back to Kimberly Crenshaw's intersectionality essay, essay where she talks about mapping the margins, who gets to be at the center of the conversation, who gets to control the discourse. So there's this, this ebb and flow that goes back and forth mm -hmm. between the activists and the academics. And this is why each successive generation of academics get less and less impressive and more silly sounding. Like, I mean, say what you want about Foucault, at least he like 
was yeah. a rigorous thinker in some ways. Yes. Robin D'Angelo yes. is a moron, but yes, but, but yes, but that's the, right. But the power political needs of the worldview yeah. ultimately are in the driver's seat. They get ran up the chain to get theorized and then you keep on going through that cycle and that's why you have Ibram X Kendi and Robin D'Angelo yeah. have room temperature IQs in charge of this stuff. Now. And 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 what you end up with what what really does happen is by the time it hits like the mainstream and it gets onto Twitter, you can actually see that like the activists on Twitter will say stuff will they they they'll they'll they're obsessed with like naming things. Because once you name a thing, you name a phenomenon, then you can start theorizing about it. So, like, they'll name something like empathy, sympathy for men, empathy. Mm. Mm, we've mentioned, and then then academics can start theorizing about empathy, and then writing books about empathy. I mean, I think that term. Oh, I can't remember who coined it. It might have been um, oh, who? What's her name? I can't remember their name off the top of my head, but uh. It wasn't Anina Sarkeesian, was it? <laughs> no, no. The feminist philosopher who wrote, um, oh, it's going to bug me now. We'll, we'll come back to it. But but they write about, oh, she'll be very upset that I forgot her name. Mm -hmm. You mentioned all the men, but you didn't mention <laughs> them. This is, this is internalized patriarchy. Yeah. You need to deconstruct your white maleness in yeah. order to understand why you can't remember my name. Cat mm -hmm. Maine. That's her name. <laughs> That's her name. See, I yeah, now that you made into the headspace. Yeah, yeah now yeah. that you made fun of her. You yeah, yeah. I had to, once once you start getting yourself into that mode, it just it just kind of returns. You know, yeah. you speak the magic incantation of mm -hmm. and the the intersectionalists intersectionalists show up. Um, so yeah, so they they kind of just like invent a word and then they can just from that they can just draw out implications and start theorizing and theorizing. So it starts out with wrong but quasi rigorous work in Foucault and Derrida and Baudrillard I actually find really interesting and <clears throat> then it gets kind of like churned and churned and churned and churned and churned and so that very very not creative people can pick up on the new thing and they're not brilliant so they can't get to the top of the tree but they can pick the low-hanging fruit mm -hmm. by just saying well I'm doing uh, discourse analysis, Foucaultian Derrida and discourse analysis that's intersectional with Kimberly Crenshaw mm -hmm. and critical theory. Uh, and I'm applying that to sports. <laughs> yeah, I'm doing an intersectional analysis of hockey. And it's like, well, no one's done that before. See, it's it's I'm doing an intersectional analysis of evangelical whiteness. It's like. And a person who does that is David French. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. No, it would be like Kristen Dumay, yeah. right? Yeah. Or or whoever it is. And and they're just it's just so you start out and what you end up with by the time it's the activists on the ground, mm -hmm. it's by the time it's getting into the mouths of like of these people who are just posting on Twitter and trying to fit in, it's woke copy pasta. Mm -hmm. Is what it is. What you what you what you start out with was at least somewhat interesting or rigorous series, and you end up with copy pasta because mm -hmm. they're all just trying to speak the jargon. And the jargon does have meaning. It's not meaningless. It's not word salad. Mm -hmm. It's copy pasta. Mm -hmm. So instead of saying, well, we really do need to do an intersectional analysis of the way that cisgendered heteropatriarchal norms have embedded themselves in the cultural institutions within academia. <clears throat> Someone else says, well, I'm studying the way that that cisgendered heteronormative patriarchal assumptions have abandoned themselves within art and culture. Someone else says, that's interesting. I'm look the way, looking at the way that sex, sexism, racism, and transphobia are all influenced by the cisgendered heteropatriarchal norms and assumptions that exist within the various cultural institutions as they produce whiteness. <laughs> oh, wow. I'm And it's just, it's just like... Right. And it's all you sit there and it's like that all means something, but yeah. it's just it's just cookie cutter, cut and paste. And they're all as they try to. That's why they all have imposter syndrome, because they're all imposters. Well, because they don't actually know anything. They know this protocol way of thinking and they can apply it to that's any right. serious field and, that's and right. get a job for it. And in a world where, you know, there's a lot of PhDs and not enough professorships, you know, you, you, everyone needs to earn their bread. And this is the way they earn their well, bread. Well, and they like eat each other too for like not being intersexual oh, enough. Oh, absolutely. You know? like, like a wonderful example of that is Henry Giroux was 
uh, who was critical pedagogy. So if you think critical theory, move that right into uh, education now, it's critical pedagogy. When the left says critical, they don't mean critical the way we mean it. And we'll talk about that in a second. But Henry Giroux, uh, I believe it was in 1990, got problematized by a feminist for for his assumptions and for not properly taking stock of feminism within his critical within his critical pedagogy. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's like we're problematizing you. Pro, you know, we're problematizing Michael Foucault for not. Um, considering not being intersectional enough in his analysis and, mm-hmm. and centering the voices of black people. He centered the voices of white people mm-hmm. and he had a white perspective. And the reason Derrida thought he could deconstruct everything is because he was a privileged white male. So it it all just eats itself and they're all trying to, to find out some way to apply this intersectional postmodern deconstructive ideology in some new way to some new thing. Mm-hmm. So, you know. No, that, that makes exact sense and it's funny um as you're sort of pantomiming the way that they would argue these relative arguments it sort of goes full circle in your story about how you first got involved in all of this because peter bergosian james lindsay and all these guys the thing is is that you know most of their people have like a room temperature iq so all it takes is a relatively intelligent conservative who's familiar with the jargon to basically create the arguments a priori for stuff that they haven't even thought up yet um and uh it's um and and that's why um you know it got you involved in the fight and and uh and Uh we're glad that it did um Wokel, where can people follow your work and and keep up with what you're doing? Entirely on Twitter, <laughs> at Wokel underscore distance. Yeah. Can I just touch on one more thing? Sure. I have been somewhat frustrated because people have not taken the time to understand this ideology. Mm-hmm. They do have a way of making their stuff feel intuitive to people. I mean, they do pull up um, things like, well, you don't understand what it's like to be a black person and you kind of go like okay fair enough and then they say so unless you're black there's certain things you can't understand and you go okay fair enough therefore part of your knowledge is based on on your skin color and you kind of go okay maybe very certain public experiences and they say well if part of knowledge is based on your skin color then uh when you're doing research in say nuclear physics um it's advantageous to have a particular skin color and you go Wait, wait, no, <laughs> I, you don't have an experience of being an electron. You don't experience being a quark or, um, or, or, you know, whatever it is. You, you've never experienced what it's like to be a wave function collapsing. That's not a thing. You don't have that. But, but you can see how they take their thing and they, they take the simplest example, abstract it out and make it seem somewhat intuitive. Mm-hmm. And if they can do that, and they do that a lot through art, through culture, through movies, music, television, images, they do a lot of this. And they can make it feel reasonable, intuitive. That's why people get sucked into it through storytelling. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the things that conservatives have not done well is we have not made the effort to understand it and to hit its weak points and show why it's impoverished. Mm -hmm. And to be able to make simple observations like, so, so my family is, I'm, I'm a Protestant, I'm Pentecostal, but my family is Jewish. So I know because I'm Jewish, how much the relative amount of anti-Semitism that exists in Canada, how frequent it is because I am subjected to it from time to time. If I have to wear a yarmulke for a family function or for, for some reason, or if I'm wearing, say my grandfather's watch, which has Hebrew letters on it, and someone says something, um, I, I pick up on it pretty quick. And I was taught to pick up on it. So I I know it when I see it. Okay. It's one thing for me to say I've experienced anti-Semitism. I know what it feels like. It's a different thing if I would say, well, because I'm Jewish, I have special knowledge in the area of, I don't know, being an auto mechanic. (laughs) No, one doesn't fall from the other. Mm -hmm. But if I can say, I know what it's like to be Jew, Jewish in, in Canada. I know what it's like to have come from a Jewish family in Canada. I can know something that a non-Jew doesn't know. We can start getting the idea off the ground that there's some knowledge to be gained from your place in society and how you're put there according to your various identities. And if they can get that idea off the ground, they can start shoehorning it into everything from physics to math. Mm -hmm. And that's part of what they do. And conservatives have not done a good job to sit down and 
decode exactly what the leftists' ideas are arguing and exactly why they go wrong. And they go wrong on the fact that they deconstruct and destroy all of the standards that we might use for truth. And so they cut off the branch that they're sitting on and they're just kind of left with the social inertia that's that's left over and the uh, the inertia and legitimacy they get from unchallenged assumptions mm-hmm. and and we have not done a good job of teasing that fact out of teasing out the fact that they've used their the legitimacy that they have created for themselves that they've manufactured and that they've used the assumed validity of certain arguments to to be able to to create a kind of social inertia where they can't be challenged, where the very act of challenging them is seen as racist or sexist. And we haven't done a good job of being able to undercut it so that we can quickly on the spot say, what you're doing is nonsense. Here's the tactic you're, u- you're using to be able to, to recognize the tactic, name the tactic, explain the tactic, and show why it's wrong in a quick way so that we don't get caught on the spot. And we really, really need to start doing that. So books to read, Cynical Theories uh, by James Lindsay and Helen Pluckrose. Um, um, Woke Racism by John McWhorter is another good one. Uh, Woke Inc. Oh, who's the guy? Is it like Ramaswamy? Yes, Woke Inc. These are books that we need to be reading and understanding so that we can we can push back on this. And that's like a, I can't stress enough the importance of that. Those are great recommendations. And uh, you're right, the the task is urgent because at some point um, they, they'll spend all their time deconstructing whiteness and we won't have any electricians left and suddenly the lights will turn off one day and we'll all be screwed. Yeah. Um, so thank you, Woko, for coming on the podcast and, and thank you for making the trip down from uh, the great white north. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Told you it'd be an interesting episode, and um, uh, we could have probably kept talking with with Wokel for quite a while there. But uh, unfortunately, uh, he had to uh, be some other places, and uh, and we have work to do here. As a reminder, we're we're working on tons of stuff all the time. But remember, this is not just a podcast. This is uh, an entire institution that's working on um, a lot of different things. Namely, at this point, you can be taking a look at uh, our program fellowship for american statecraft unfortunately foundations the application is closed so we'll be hopefully announcing who received that um, fairly soon here but foundations uh, of american statecraft uh, hopefully will be a smashing success but fellowship for american statecraft which is our flagship uh, internship program that we do uh, we did it last year it was a smashing success it's where you'll get paid three thousand dollars a month to get a job on capitol hill uh, or at a public policy organization here in dc um, it's designed to help people break into the space we don't want you just sitting on Twitter all day getting steamed up about these ideas. We want you to be able to do something about it. And so that's why we created the Fellowship for American Statecraft. It's uh, uh, We're expecting hundreds of applications this year, and um, there's no reason you shouldn't be one of them. Again, we're not looking for the most prestigious background or whatever. We're looking for talented, capable people who are willing to fight. And so you can go to AmericanMoment.org slash fellowship to learn more about that, as well as just go to AmericanMoment.org in general to hear more about everything we have cooking. And um, be sure to rate and review this podcast. Um, we're enormously grateful that all of you have uh, responded in a great way to season two. We're certainly enjoying doing it. Everything's a little bit different than it was last season, uh, and we're still editing and making changes here. Uh, hopefully you like the new intro. We think it's pretty cool. Um, but uh, you know, send us feedback. If you write a five-star review and ask a question in there, we'll be sure to answer it. Or if you uh, just want to send us some private feedback, just uh, mail us at podcast at AmericanMoment.org with that review. Uh, we're always eager to communicate with the surprising number of you that are listening every week so thank you guys as always and uh, we'll see you next week moment of truth is an american moment studios production filmed at the conservative partnership center our podcast is produced and edited by jake mercier and jared cummings our intro music is a minor struggle by ryan serenich don't forget to like and subscribe on all platforms and you can go to americanmoment.org to learn more